You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. And I have uh, Dr. Aubrey de Grey, who's a biomedical gerontologist who's devised a platform and a research foundation called SENS, S-E-N-S, which is uh, Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence. Um, he got a BA in Computer Science and a PhD in Biology from University of Cambridge. And he's Editor-in-Chief of Rejuvenation Research and a fellow of both the Gerontological Society of America the American Aging Association, and uh, we're going to talk about Aubrey's research. So, Aubrey, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, what, what is it about uh, aging that uh, fascinated you and made you wanted to work in the field for so long? Work in this field was that hardly anybody else was working in it. What still hmm. completely astonishes me is that it has not always been obvious to everybody that aging is a medical problem that is the the number one problem facing humanity these days because it causes more suffering than anything else could be a rather high priority why do you think that um people haven't focused much on aging at all uh, even though it's essentially the number one killer of uh or the number one uh, negative health outcome for for people yeah i i think there's only one explanation which is that while we are in this state where we can't yet bring aging under medical control, it is this terrible, terrible thing that's going to happen in the relatively distant future for most people. And they've got to find some way to put it out of their minds and get on with their lives. And the only way to really do that is to have some kind of irrational attitude to aging that essentially, um, you know, uh, makes you, uh, lets you believe that it's a blessing in disguise of some kind. Of course, thinking that it's um, not a blessing, but that it is a complete inevitability that medicine will never be able to control, that is another way of putting it out of your mind, but it's equally irrational. You know, it just makes no sense. And, you know, for, until I was in my mid-twenties, I totally assumed that nobody would possibly think that way and that everybody would actually think it was something we ought to fix, and that biologists would be really trying to. But then I met, when I was 26, and married a biologist, and I found that that wasn't true. 
Um, and, and it wasn't just her, it was all the other biologists I was meeting. They all had this crazy idea, same as the rest of the world. Uh, so I thought, well, I'd better switch fields. Before then, I was working in artificial intelligence research because I thought that also, you know, there's a big problem there. Um, the fact that we have to spend so much of our lives doing stuff that we would not do unless we were being paid for it. Um, so we should have more automation. But of course, the problem of aging was far more serious. And so I switched fields. So what's what's a sampling of some of the beliefs that uh, you've heard from people about aging? Uh, you know, um, the first of, uh, either like they are practical things, like it's inevitable, there's nothing we can do about it, everything ages. Or they are philosophical, like, you know, death gives meaning to life. Or they are social. They will say, well, okay, yes, maybe we could do this, but it would create new problems that um, are worse than the problem we're solving. Like it would create unmanageable overpopulation or dictators would live forever or we wouldn't be able to pay the pension. So none of these things stand up to the faintest scrutiny, but they're still very popular. So is your research concerned more with um, why we age or how we age and how to uh, slow, halt, or reverse that, or reverse aging? It's really focused on the last of those. So why and how we age are things that we already understand pretty well. And in fact, we already did understand them pretty well 20 years ago when I got into the field, or more than 20 years ago now. Um, so... Really, the goal here is the last of what you said, to use that understanding to design and develop therapies that prevent the health problems of old age. And that's what Sense Research Foundation does. Okay, so how many heads is the aging monster? You know, I've heard there's seven ways we age, nine ways we age. How many ways that you, uh, you believe that are valid? And maybe uh, you know, if you could tick off at least some of the ways Right. So, um, well, actually, it's a lot more than that. We have very a very large number of different types of molecular and cellular damage that accumulate throughout life in various tissues. Uh, but what you're referring to, these much smaller numbers, is a kind of classification of those many types of damage. And that classification is actually really important because what it does is it helps us to identify generic approaches to repairing these various types. For each category, there's one generic repair approach. Um, now, different scientists have come up with different classifications, but the, um, the general principle is always that. So I was the first person to propose that um, any such classification exists, could exist that could be useful. And it took me a while, actually, to really um, persuade my colleagues that I was right uh, but now, yes, as you say, different people come up with different classifications, but they're all saying more or less the same thing. So what are, um, to you, I mean, there always seems to be a Pareto, even if there's many things that can happen as you age, for instance. So in your mind, in the Pareto, what's the uh, most important or most influential um, effects that are going on that are causing our aging? Oh, they really can't, you really can't rank them because, you see, evolution has developed machinery, genetic machinery, to slow down the rate of accumulation of each of these types of damage. And um, that machinery, the selection, the natural selection to develop and to maintain that machinery relies on the age at which the machinery is outrun, is, over, is, is, is overwhelmed, and we get to a point where the damage actually makes us sick. 
Now, that means that for different types of damage, it's going to be the same age. If, if one of those types of machinery, of anti-aging machinery, were, if you like, unnecessarily good, then it would not be subject to selection and it would accumulate mutations that made it work less well. So we end up with a situation in which all of these types of damage that accumulate reach a point of being pathogenic, in other words, making us sick, um, at more or less the same age. So we can't really say that one of them is more important than the other or anything. Have we expanded our uh, theory of aging to include epigenetics, you know, uh, the, the continued, let's say, methylation of and, and modulation of gene expression over a, uh, an organism's life, and then maybe also the microbiome? Um, you know, it's not our somatic cells, but uh, maybe it plays a big role in aging. Are those concepts now included? Sure. Let me, let, let me address both of those things, because the answers are not the same at all. Um, the role of epigenetic changes in aging has been recognized since the early 1980s, uh, but it's not quite what you're probably thinking of. The, what you're probably thinking of is the epigenetic clock that we see that have been very much in the, in the news over the past several years. Um, these changes to methylation that occur progressively in tissues throughout life um, now, it's quite likely that those, that those things are not actually um, causal. They do not actually do harm. Rather, they are simple readouts of other things that are doing harm. And that's, that's fine. That's still really useful because if you can um, affect the way that um, aging is progressing and those things are readouts, then you will be able to tell that your therapy is working by looking at those readouts. So that's all good. Um, but the type of epigenetic change that has been, that I said was developed, was first discussed in the early 1980s is what's better called epigenetic noise. In other words, it's not a coordinated change in all the cells in a tissue. Rather, it's random changes that occur through lack of fidelity of the processes that maintain the epigenetic state of a cell. Um, and those changes certainly do accumulate. They were first discovered when um, uh, when people noticed that neurons in the brain were in, in older people were expressing, albeit at a, a low level, uh, genes that normally only get expressed in the blood. So um, you know uh, th this became a thing. And uh, certainly, epigenetic, epigenetic noise can contribute to cancer. So it's, um, it's definitely something that has been thought about and we care about. Um, the microbiome is a rather different story. Um, and I, I pers my personal view is that the microbiome is something that we don't really need to pay all that much attention to in relation to aging, basically because it is very malleable. In other words, changes that occur in the microbiome during life are changes that are brought about by changes in our actual cells, in the human cells, and they respond to those changes. In other words, if we were to revert those changes and make the human cells in the gut more um, youthful, then the microbiome would very probably um, restore itself spontaneously. So we probably would not have had to do it ourselves. Hmm. I have a kind of a strange question. Do you, do you, when do you think we begin aging? Do you think that, you know, from the moment that, uh, you know, two cells unite to make a, you know, a blastula that, uh, that we're starting to age? Or do you think when we're born, we start to age? Or 
when we get to a certain age, we start to age. What does that curve look like to you? Oh, yeah, it's pretty much in embryogenesis early on. I mean, basically, we can define aging as the accumulation of damage, and in particular of self-inflicted damage, damage that is created as a side effect of being alive, in other words, of, you know, of normal metabolism. And, of course, normal metabolism begins right at, the, right at conception. So, um, yeah, absolutely, damage accumulates. If we look at the reasons why um, people are living longer now than before, then, of course, if we look like 200 years ago, then the answer is that we are better at stopping people from dying early in life from infections. But if we look at the last 50 years, say, we've seen a significant increase in average lifespan in even in the Western world. Um, and that has, in most people's view, come about very substantially because of better prosperity leading to better prenatal nutrition. So that babies who were born, let's say, 80 years ago, are simply be- were simply born younger, biologically younger, less damaged than babies that were born 130 years ago. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Do you, do you see that continual supposed improvement in prenatal nutrition through today? Or did it stop and reverse at some point? What's your opinion? Oh, well, I mean, for sure, the, um, you know, the obesity epidemic that we're seeing across the Western world, and especially in the US, is um, a bad thing. But that's what people do after they're born. Um, uh, I'm not so sure that it has a huge effect on, um, on prenatal nutrition. But of course, it would have some, you know, if you're a mother, if you're a pregnant mother, and you've got a poor diet, and and you're short of certain vitamins, that will certainly feed through into suboptimality of the metabolism of the fetus. So yes, absolutely, this is important. And it may have some contribution to the leveling off of of, of lifespans that we're seeing right now. But really, the main source of that leveling off is simply that there is an optimum amount of uh, uh, you know, quality of nutrition. And once you're nearly there, you can't do much better, very much in the same way that we can't extend average longevity in the developed world significantly further by um, you know, better vaccines or better antibiotics, because hardly anybody dies early in life from infections anymore anyway. So do you think that we can extend lifespan or just health span? Oh, we can definitely extend lifespan as well as health span. Um, of course, we will extend lifespan as a consequence of extending health span, but there's no hard limit that we can't break through. The way that we'll do it, though, is by very different types of medicine than what have been used so far. The medicines that are going to work are medicines that repair the damage I've been talking about, these various molecular and cellular changes that the body can only tolerate a certain amount of. If we can, if We're not going to be able to stop those types of change from occurring, from being created as consequences of metabolism, but we can stop them from reaching a problematic level of abundance by periodically going in and repairing most of the damage. And that is precisely the kinds of therapies that Science Research Foundation and now a lot of other groups are, stri- are, are striving to develop as soon as possible. Yeah, so what are some of the efforts? What are some of the mechanisms that you're targeting? Can you be specific at all? Sure, absolutely. Um, Well, the best known is undoubtedly stem cell therapy. Stem cell therapy is a repair strategy. The the type of damage that it repairs is basically loss of cells. So if you've got an organ and cells are dying and they're not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells, then obviously the number of cells in that organ will progressively decline. 
and eventually there won't be enough cells for the organ to do its job, which um, we can we can um, alleviate simply by injecting stem cells that know what to do, that we've prepared in the lab to be the right kind of stem cell that will divide and um, transform itself, transform themselves into um, replacements for the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. So, for example, in Parkinson's disease, you know, Parkinson's disease is driven by that type of damage, by the death and non-replacement of a particular type of neuron in a particular part of the brain. And uh, even 25 years ago, when stem cell therapy was first tried for Parkinson's disease, it was occasionally spectacularly successful. And that was even though we had really very little understanding back then of how to manipulate stem cells so that we were injecting the right type of stem cell. Now, we've got much more understanding of how to do that, and um, half a dozen clinical trials are ongoing or starting up right now, um, and people are very optimistic that this will be a genuine cure for Parkinson's. Where do the uh, efficacious stem cells come from? Is it from the same person? You're just culturing more of them that exist in a given tissue than are currently there? Is it banking younger versions of your own cells and using them when you're older? Is it from donors? Is it from fat? Is it from the particular tissue? Like, it sounds like there's many sources, but which are the yeah, best so working so right. far? Yeah, you're quite right. There are many sources, and they have pros and cons in terms of um, ease of manufacture, in terms of um, uh, ease of prevention from being rejected by the recipient, all those kinds of things. But at the moment, especially over the past 10 years or so, um, it's become a lot easier to do this. First of all, there is the wonderful thing called induced pluripotent stem cells, a technology that was developed in the mid-2000s in, in Japan, um, basically where we can take cells from a person who needs them, we can take cells out, even if they don't have the right type of stem cell, so we can't just expand them as they are, we can take a different type of cell from that person and wind back its developmental clock so that it becomes a very versatile stem cell again, like a stem cell that only normally exists in the embryo. And then we can essentially re-guide that cell to become the right kind of stem cell that we need. And of course, it's still the same DNA in those cells that it was when we took them out of the person. So if we put them back into that same person, then they don't have a problem of being rejected by the person's immune system. Now, um, that's quite elaborate, though. And, you know, doing that whole process every time for, for every patient individually is very laborious. And a lot of people think it will never be economical. Um, so there's also a lot of interest in allowing cells to be used that come from a different person. And then you've got two choices. Either you uh, have the same situation as you do with organ transplantation, where you just have the person on lifelong immune suppression, or you do some clever tricks to the cells so that even though they're from the same person, they don't get seen by the immune system of the person receiving them. And one trick that actually a company I'm involved with called AJAX is using for that is to mimic the tricks that happen during pregnancy, um, where hmm. the fetus needs to develop without being rejected by the mother's immune system. There are particular genes that the fetus makes, proteins that the fetus makes, um, that protect itself from the, from the mother, and we're trying to piggyback on that. What about uh, studying cancer? Cancer seems to uh, set up a microenvironment that can, uh, you know, fool the immune system mm -hmm. pretty well. 
maybe perhaps some lessons learned there? Well, yeah, kind of. Um, so, um, yes. So cancer, of course, is part of aging. Almost all cancers are predominantly um, ones that affect the elderly. And so it's very much part, part of the area that we're looking at. And you're quite right. There's a great deal of interest in how to... Um, uh, in how cancers protect themselves from the immune system. We would definitely die of cancer, you know, probably before we were adults if we didn't have such good immune defenses that detect and destroy almost all precancerous cells before they get to be a proper cancer. But of course, eventually, cancers get clever enough over time with enough of the right kinds of mutations um, so that they can evade it. And yes, you're quite right. We could in principle, um, because we do understand quite a bit about how cancers do this now, and that's why we're getting so good at cancer immunotherapy, um, uh, we could somehow create those same tricks in stem cells. But we kind of wouldn't want to, really, because then um, we wouldn't be able to use these uh, clever cancer immunotherapy tricks that we have, um, or rather if we did use them, to stop this, the person from getting cancer, then the same therapy would also kill the stem cells that we had put into the person for a good reason. So in addition to, you know, effectively culturing stem cells, the ones we need, deploying them so they don't act systemically, but they act locally, um, any other additions to the stem cells? And I've heard of people trying to piggyback certain molecules so the stem cells will carry them to the right site and deploy them. I mean, is there any way of uh, modifying stem cells so that they're more effective at their job? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. And in fact, um, before I go directly to that question, let me uh, put it in context, because actually um, a lot of the stem cell therapies that are done today and that seem to be somewhat effective are done with allogeneic cells, in other words, cells that come from a different person, and without any of these tricks to um, prevent the immune system from destroying them. So we expect that these cells will actually only be rather short-lived in the body. And one might think, well, okay, what's the point of that? The point is that while they, before they get destroyed by the immune system, these cells actually secrete stuff that's good for their environment. And so they kind of rejuvenate the host cells, the cells of the recipient, um, in a, into a manner that they can act um, you know, younger, even after the stem cells themselves have been destroyed. Um, and of course, yes, absolutely. One could enhance that property, um, that beneficial property, by making various genetic modifications. Of course, the genetic modifications might be very specific to a particular tissue, um, you know, to secrete such and such a molecule that maybe the tissue doesn't make enough of late in life. Absolutely. Yeah, do, do we know why uh, some tissues in the body have a lot of stem cells that are fast dividing? Some have very few. and I don't know if many have none, but uh, why is there such a difference in the... Uh the amount and efficacy and rate of, of stem cell use and production? Well, first of all, let me correct what you said. The stem cells in stem cells in the body do not divide rapidly. In fact, that's very important. If they did divide rapidly, they would stop being stem cells. They only divide very, very oh, slowly. Even in, even in skin? Even in skin, yeah. In the skin or the blood. Um, you know, the, 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 what happens is that the stem cells themselves only divide every few, once every few months. But then the process of going from a stem cell to the terminal cell, the cells that actually make the skin or make the blood, 
That involves a lot of cell divisions during which differentiation into the eventual form happens step by step. And during those steps, the cells, which are called transit amplifying cells, those cells do divide rapidly. And that's how we can actually replenish the blood. You know, the blood's got a lot of cells in it and we have to turn them out and they only last a few months. The red, red cells, for example, um, those cells have to be replaced at a huge rate. The, the way we're able to do that is by, the, by virtue of these rapid transit amplifying cell division. But the long-term repopulating cells, the stem cells themselves, only divide very slowly. All right, but to back to your question, um, why do some, some tissues have, or do some tissues have more stem cells than others? Absolutely. And in fact, in most tissues, like for example, the liver, um, the stem cells don't divide at all, except when the liver is injured. Normally, they just sit there hanging out. They basically, you know, at least they don't divide to a detectable rate. Um, so they're there to, um, uh, to respond to injury of some kind. Then in some tissues, we seem to have no stem cells whatsoever, or at least no active ones. So in the brain, for example, um, there is one region of the brain in the hippocampus where there is a small amount of neurogenesis of stem cells dividing and differentiating to form new neurons even in even in adults but in most areas of the brain there's absolutely none and um we'd like to fix that we'd like to not only do this for parkinson's disease as i mentioned earlier where you just have to put stem cells into one very small part of the brain called the substantia nigra we'd also like to do it across the whole brain because in alzheimer's disease for example there is loss of neurons, um, you know, across across the whole cortex. It happens uh, more in some places than others, but it's very distributed. And we've actually got a project that we're funding at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, looking at ways to do that. It's a technical challenge for sure, but we think we can. Um, you spoke about a number of clinical trials that are in progress. Are you, are you able to uh, talk about what the goal of the trials are? I guess these are the closest things we're going to get right now until. Uh, the actual uh, therapies that are out in the field? Sure. I mean, the goals, of course, are to rejuvenate the organ that is being um, injected, that's being affected. So in the case of Parkinson's disease, the goal is to eliminate Parkinson's symptoms. And, um, and that's certainly what seems to happen when, um, when the, these particular type of neurons called dopaminergic neurons are replenished. Uh, you know, uh, their, their number is, is restored to youthful levels. Okay. Any other um, clinical trials that you uh, that you think are going to be really fascinating if they're working out? Oh, they sure. Out? I mean, let's, let's actually talk about other other types of damage as well, because these are coming to clinical trials now as well. So right now, um, just uh, middle of last year, I guess about a year ago, uh, a company named Unity Biotechnology, which is the leader in looking at what are called senescent cells, um, they started a clinical trial. Um, to remove senescent cells using drugs that they had developed. Now, the clinical trial is only looking at cartilage at the moment. It's treating osteoarthritis. Um, but senescent cells occur all over the body, and we want to remove these cells because they are definitely a type of damage that's bad for us. Um, and it's certainly the intention of Unity and other companies to um, remove senescent cells across the whole body. They're starting in, in the knee, but um, there's plenty more where that comes from. And a number of the other areas, including companies that we've spun out as startup companies, are um, planning clinical trials over the next year or two 
that will um, remove other types of damage, like molecular waste products that accumulate inside cells, for example. We've also got a company that we've spun out that is likely to be able to start a clinical trial next year on removing amyloid from uh, various tissues, especially um, from the heart. Amyloid is a type of molecular waste product again, but it's one that accumulates in the spaces between cells and stops cells from communicating properly. So, um, again, that's very important. Uh, you know, maybe a couple of questions about senescent cells. What, uh, what characterizes a cell as being senescent versus uh, not? Sure. So um, the first thing, the main thing that characterizes it is that it is doing more harm than good by secreting uh, into, the, into its environment uh, chemicals that are toxic to other cells. And the second thing that characterizes it is that it is able to protect itself, very much like cancers, from the immune system. The immune system is actually pretty good at getting rid of these kind of aberrant, uh, you know, dysfunctional cells, but it's not 100% perfect at it. And that's because they also develop these mechanisms to protect themselves. So a lot of what's being done now is developing ways to overcome that protection. And again, that's something that we have a project um, uh, looking at doing, uh, doing in new ways. But of course, it's also possible just to directly kill the senescent cell and to overcome the mechanisms that they are using to keep themselves alive. And that's what Unity is trying to do. Do these cells uh, appear in all tissues across the body and do they appear in varying amounts? Any tissues where they seem to appear early and often? Varying amounts for sure. Uh, but yes, all over the body, every kind, of, every kind of tissue gets these things. And they accumulate steadily with age. At this point, you know, we're not even sure whether that accumulation is because the immune system gets less good at destroying them or whether they're just coming into existence more often because of more damage to the cells or because they just accumulate because they're not being got rid of. And some of them are really uh, have hung out for decades. But for whatever reason, whether it's a combination of those three, um, we certainly do get more of them in late, late life and they're definitely bad for us. Well, what about uh, which tissues in which they appear would be the most deleterious and which tissues would be the most easy, theoretically, to clean up? Well, the reason why Unity have gone for the knee is because for sure there's good evidence that the that senescent cells accumulate in cartilage. Um, so, uh, the cells in the cartilage that make cartilage are called chondrocytes and um, actually it's it, there's, there's, there's some evidence that uh, chondrocytes are the single cell type that is the worst affected by this type of problem. The highest proportion of chondrocytes go uh, become senescent late in life. Um, and yes, they definitely cause cartilage to be less good than it would be at regenerating. Um, so, and another reason why Unity has chosen osteoporosis first is safety. Of course, it's early days and the drugs that are being tested are experimental. That's why we need clinical trials in the first place. Um, so uh, if you're injecting into the knee, then it's not going into the circulation. It's got less opportunity to be toxic somewhere else, you know, for un for unidentified reasons. Um, and uh, But really, the answer to your question is that everywhere that we see senescent cells, they seem to be doing harm. The reason why Unity are doing so well, they got a, um, a huge amount of money, like $300 million invested in them a year ago, is because the the results that came out of laboratory experiments done by the what some of the scientific founders of unity um were so impressive you could take mice that had a lot of senescent cells and you could genetically remove them by a trick that you couldn't actually do in humans 
Um, and they would be, you know, all manner of ways they would be more youthful. Even their um, spinal cord would be straighter. You know, they would get, they wouldn't get so hunched. That's something that happens to mice normally. Um, you know, and their skin would be better, and their, you know, everything would be better. So okay, so you've been able to do that just in individual populations of cells, but not inside the body for sure, and not even in animal models. Oh yeah, definitely we can do it. I mean, so the the original experiments uh, that were published back in 20, in 2011 were with an artificial model that was genetically modified in a way that made it easy to get rid of the senescent cells. But of course, the next step was to figure out ways to do it in genetically unmodified animals, and that's where Unity came from. Basically, they uh, were able to identify drugs that were reasonably reasonably effective in mice, and of course, that's gone on. Um, because they've been able to get so much funding, they've been able to do a large amount of drug screening and get drugs that are progressively more effective. And yes, absolutely, all over the body. So in, in doing such a thing and removing the senescent cells, what was noticed? How did the, uh, the creature that it was done in react? So like I said, everything was better. You know, you could compare the animals um, and, you know, the, 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 at an age when the animals with the senescent cells were looking really ropey, you know, they had... Um, bad skin and they were not running around so much and their spines were bent and and they you know they started getting cancer even things like that none of these things were happening at that same age the mice would last longer before going downhill and was this looked at uh you know over a period of time did the um did the appearance of new senescent cells happen at the same rate did they slow was there a i mean how long did this effect last did it just literally reset the organism back to this earlier state and it progressed forward normally? Well, of course, there are other types of damage that are accumulating in these mice, same as there are in humans. As I said, there are many different types of damage. So, of course, the animals did get sick eventually in some other ways. But, yes, I mean, these drugs that were developed um, were, were applied multiple times. So there was never an accumulation of senescent cells after that. Are there certain types of damage that uh, need to be addressed along with other kinds of damage in order for this to be effective? I mean, ideally, you'd want to address every form of damage, I'm sure, at the same time. But are there a few juicy ones that you can pick that really will have a great effect? Or do you need to try to affect as many as possible? Yeah, so that's that's not really the way we think about it. Because as you say, we do eventually have to repair everything. And um, so actually at Sense Research Foundation, we have put ourselves in a position where we're able to work on the most difficult areas of damage, the areas that, you know, there's a lot of work to do. And it might even be a long time before there are any, it's, it's possible even to publish anything. Um, so, you know, it's not conducive to the environment that exists in industry or indeed in academia in terms of short termism. Um, and so we've been very successful in causing the most challenging areas that were initially um, being very neglected, causing them to catch up. We've been able to fund them and actually cause them to, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to get to a sufficient proof of concept that we could even in many cases spin them out into startup companies. So, um, uh, so, so yes, I, I, I don't really have a priority list. But, of course, when one is looking at... Um, the development of all of this, one has got to develop the, uh, the the repair strategies individually. And so when one moves to clinical trials, one specifically identifies a patient group that appears to be particularly suffering from one particular type of damage. And then one can observe benefits even when one has not yet developed the other types of repair. 
So, for, I mean, the, the case that we were talking about earlier of Parkinson's disease is a fine example. People with Parkinson's disease have other things wrong with them as well, but perhaps not that's not so seriously. So one can see a great improvement in cognitive function and therefore in quality of life. I just wonder what the effect of, you know, repairing one type of damage is in the context of all these other kinds of damage. You know, let's say you take a 70-year-old person. Mm. You know, they have a lot of damage in all these areas. You fix one area. How do they respond versus trying to repair three or four types of damage they have? Or yeah. let's I, say I, you take a 70-year-old guy and you give him a 20-year-old's liver. You, you know, somehow just give him the transplant and there's no autoimmunity. But what do you think would happen in that context? So I mean, um, it's just it's just like I said, you know, the the the, the, pa- the patients that will benefit the most from individual therapies are the ones who, for whatever reason, have a particular type of damage occurring and reaching a problematic level more quickly than the other types of damage. Now, people who live unusually long, people who get to let's say ninety or a hundred, those are people who obviously do not have that problem. All of them. Are generating damage of all types slowly, and therefore, by definition, they're going to end up getting multiple types of damage more simultaneously than people who got sick at a younger age. Um, and as such, they will have less opportunity to benefit from individual therapies. They will need a, a, the more comprehensive package. Hmm. Interesting. Um, when senescence has been studied in people. Have the very old been studied? Have you know a big range of uh, ages been studied? Like how extensive has the uh, has our investigation been into what senescence looks like in different people at different ages and different kinds of people? Yeah, there's not really been enough of that yet. Of course, people have been studying older uh, the elderly um, to look for what goes wrong with them for quite a long time. And in particular, there have been some very important studies which are called longitudinal studies, where the same people uh, start, were, were studied starting when they were young adults and have been followed throughout their lives so as to understand better how such um, things actually develop chronologically. Um, uh, but one thing that has been missing is a thorough analysis of what really elderly people die of. And in fact, it was only 10 years ago or so that people started to do autopsies of centenarians. Um, just a few, of course, but um, but still, enough to get some idea of what they were dying of. Because previously, people thought, well, that's not very interesting. They did well, you know, what the hell. Um, so uh, there was a very interesting discovery that... Um, something I mentioned earlier, the uh, the accumulation of amyloid in the heart was actually the number one cause of death of the extreme elderly. And that was part of why we ended up funding a group in Texas at the University of Texas to um, to research ways to eliminate that stuff. And that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, was very successful and it's now been spun out into a company. So, you know, in, in our conversation, you don't sound very surprised about a lot of things. But So I want to ask you, what, what does surprise you recently? <laughs> what information have you learned that you're, like, really scratching your head about? Well, um, it's actually not quite like that. It's a more uh, information. The, the, the surprises have all been good surprises. So they're more a case of, you know, um, throwing my hat in the air. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, for example, I mentioned the development of induced pluripotent stem cells. That was back in 2006. And it was absolutely out of the blue now in retrospect we should not have been too surprised that it was relatively easy to reset cells back to an embryonic state because 
you know, the, 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 the early embryo has to do exactly that thing. And anything that is genetically encoded is likely to be genetically encoded by a small number of genes. Um, but still, it was a huge breakthrough. And then, of course, there was CRISPR, this new way of, of editing the genome uh, in a very site-specific way, you know, changing particular uh, parts of the genome. You know, that was, again, completely out of the blue. Um, then, uh, of course, there are other things that turn up that are much more specific to particular types of damage and particular ways of of, of, um, of repairing that damage, uh, and they get more, more technical. For example, um, one of the things that we want to do is to repair damaged mitochondria. And uh, about in about 2006, again, it was discovered that there was a particular very counterintuitive trick that could be used that would help that, that, that was going to be an essential component of the therapy that we were trying to develop. Um, you know, those kinds of things happen all the time. But what doesn't seem to happen is um, bad news. You know, in, in the entire 20 years now since I first proposed this comprehensive damage repair approach, we haven't had a single case of a new type of damage coming in and being discovered that doesn't fit into my seven-point classification. Um, or, for that matter, we haven't come up against any new discovery that showed that the approach to repair that I had proposed back then was not going to work. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's all pretty good news. How do you, I, I hope this is not too personal, but how do you feel about your own aging? I'm doing pretty well, actually. I've been lucky enough to have a lot of... Um, uh, t- tests of my biological age over the past 15 years or so I've been tested five times at really high-end tests and um, it um, you know it, it, it's gone really well I always come out more than a decade younger than I um, you know than, than my chronological age and that's pretty nice okay and you know like you know as you work in this field for a while if you have any you know thought how your thoughts have changed about your own circumstance or the circumstance of people that are close to you you know you do you feel like an impetus to uh, to make them understand what you're understanding, or do you, you know, I don't know. Um, I'm no, not really. I feel more, uh, you know, you know, it's it's humanity in general that gets me out of bed in the morning. It's it's not the fact that some particular person is getting older. It's more the fact that a hundred thousand people are dying every day from aging. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And similarly for uh, understanding, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, what matters here is to get the work done. And that only takes a small number of scientists, I mean, but not all that small, you know, therefore it definitely takes more funding, uh, but that means persuading people that it's a valuable thing to to support. And that means, of course, not only wealthy individuals or even, you know, other philanthropists, but also um, people in government, which means persuading the general public to vote for it and to lobby for it. So, yeah, that's really why I do so much media and why I spend my time running around the world giving talks. Okay. And yeah, last question. What uh, so? What do you see as possible in the next five years versus the next twenty? I think in the next five years we're going to see some incremental improvements in our ability to repair types of damage in aging. But for the reasons that we've already discussed, I think that for the average person, those improvements will not really translate into a significant extension of healthy lifespan and therefore of total lifespan. However, what we will see in five years is, um, I believe, a very big sea change in people's expectations of what's going to happen later on. At the moment, as you mentioned, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, 
there's a huge amount of fatalism and skepticism and, you know, really, you know, not very good um, reasons why, um, uh, 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 why, why we shouldn't do this. And that irrationality is going to go away. It's definitely going to um, just uh, be replaced completely by uh, an attitude that this really is a medical problem and a really, really urgent one, far more important than any other medical problem. I think the reason why it's going to happen soon, like in the next five years, as you said, is simply because it's going to be driven by the relatively modest improvements in the in laboratory success in terms of, for example, getting old mice to live longer, um, and the impact of those those advances on what other experts are willing to say to the media. At the moment, we have this huge problem that. There are maybe a dozen really high-profile experts who speak to the media a lot about the biology of aging. But of those people, I am the only one who is able to tell it like it is because everybody else relies on you know, public money from you know, grant applications from the government to get their work done. And that means that they are constantly petrified of saying anything that could be characterized as irresponsible, you know, as getting people's hopes up unduly or anything like that. So they, of course, uh, uh, dramatically in the opposite direction. Um, That's going to change. Eventually, the science is going to move far enough along that it's not going to be possible to maintain the view that, you know, it might never happen. You've absolutely got to say, yeah, it's only a matter of time. Um, so what's going to happen after that? You asked about 20 years. I think in 20 years we have more than a, um, uh, you know, more than a 50-50 chance of really getting to what I call longevity escape velocity, where we have done enough of the um, uh, damage repair portfolio to be able to essentially stay one step ahead of the problem, to repair aging as fast as the body is generating new damage. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about there with the societal consequences, but uh, I guess for this conversation, we'll keep it to the science. Well, well very good. We're, uh, we're just about out of time. I want to respect your time. Um, what's the best way for people to find more about what's really going on in aging and maybe to look at uh, some of the, the things that you're working on? Where should they go? Oh, for sure. The best place to go is sense.org, our website, S for sugar, E for elephant, N for November, S for sugar, dot O-R-G. Um, we have obviously plenty of information there about what we're what we are doing, but also lots and lots of news and other information about what other people are doing around the world in this space. And it's written for every kind of audience. There's stuff there for extreme experts, and there's also stuff stuff there for total novices. So um, yeah, you name it, it's there. And also, of course, there's a contact form. You can write to us there. You can uh, if you have any questions. Okay. So sensology.com, right? No, no, just sense.org. Oh, sense.org. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sense.org. S-E-N-S.org. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, very good. Aubrey, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, again, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, 
there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.